Welcome to Fellowship Safaris, conversations about people of color and their journeys to subspecialist training in their countries of origin and around the world. Welcome to this episode of Fellowship Safaris podcast. I have heard from all of you, and now it is time to have people other than those who specialized in pediatrics, but I'll not go ahead of myself. I want to ask my guest to introduce herself and what her professional qualifications are. Thank you, Njeri, for having me. My name is Dr. Dorcas Mushiri. A lot of people know me as Dr. Mushiri. Half the world knows me as Doki, so whatever you want to call me, I really don't mind. And I'm an obstetrician, gynecologist, and fertility specialist. So those are my formal sort of roles with my subspecialty being in reproductive endocrinology. So that's my profession. Where? Eh, let's, let's, let's unpack all those. It just... <laughs> so why obstetrics and gynecology? Let's start there. Why did you specialize in OBS and Gyne? Uh, OBS and Gyne has been uh, an interest for me since um, third year of medical school, which uh, I know most people make their decisions when they're interns, but for me it was third year. We were learning about uh, hormones and, uh, you know, the physiology of how the body works and the pathology, which is abnormalities. And we started going to the clinical areas and I could relate what we'd learned in sort of the preclinical years. And I was so fascinated by the female body. So it's, you know, it's a fascination. Other things have come up as I've continued with my career, but initially it was just the thought that the body changes so much to carry a pregnancy. It changes so much to be able for women to get periods. And then in the end, the hormones just, you know, sort of drop the eggs, come down, and then there's no more hormones. So all those things just fascinated me. And that's how I ended up in OBS and Gain. Oh, wow. I think Tabia was very stressful for me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's great to hear that your passion started all the way back when we were in third year. And more specifically, you've talked about going into a subspecialty of fertility. So how did yeah. that come about as you continued in terms of your learning? So I must put a caveat because I've got a lot of interest in different things. I'm currently also picking up on something else as a specialty, which I'll mention um, later. But uh, fertility in itself was a continuum of what I'd started. So I had a practice and I was working seeing pregnant women. But in the same practice, in the same time, I was seeing a lot of couples uh, struggling. The figures are actually quite dramatic and people don't quite realize how difficult it can be to get pregnant only because you're surrounded and especially in the older days you are surrounded by couples who get pregnant very easily and very at a young age so the population and the dynamics have changed over time and we're getting more women even men sort of delaying conception to a much later date and having problems when they're coming to conceive so that's where my interest came but a lot of fertility is also then hormones so it's a lot about how the brain talks to the ovary, how the ovary talks to the uterus. There's quite a lot of hormone stuff in fertility as well. So again, just 
putting on more fascination to this female body. That sort of brings me on to my other interest, which is a lot of uh, research and health systems yes. and education for, for women, because um, a lot of the things that have changed have come from women empowerment and, you know, sort of work on your career, go to school. A lot of things that are quite positive in that way, but we've forgotten to mention what impact that has on our personal lives. Oh, wow. You know, when we think about women empowerment and how much progress we've made, I know like people think about it from the fringe perspective, but you, you're in the heart, you know, you're in the heart of all of it. And it has had an impact in our ability to reproduce because things have been put on hold until much later. Yeah. So you've talked to us about OBS and Gain and you've talked to us about your passion about fertility and tell us about you transitioning now into reproductive endocrinology. What is that? So the way we reproduce and the way our bodies function is down to a lot of hormones and hormones are like small molecules that have activity. So if we break down what makes up the body, you've got fluids, which is your bloods, you've got the solid elements, which is your muscle. So things like the uterus and the tubes and things like that. And then in the background, you've got molecular stuff. That's the only way I can try and explain it. That then helps all these pieces sort of come together. And reproductive endocrinology is the study of the hormones that impact fertility. And that's a wide range of things. It's, it's including the thyroid, which produces a hormone that can affect fertility. You've got hormones that are coming from the brain that talk to the ovary, so they stimulate and make the lady produce some eggs. And then there's stuff that comes from the ovary, which is estrogen and progesterone. So that is what reproductive endocrinology basically is. That's really, really exciting to hear that, Yani, your fascination has taken you to the molecular level of the body, which is so exciting to hear about. I'm just wondering when you are trying to figure out where you do this training, what were your options and how did you settle on where you went to do your subspecialty training? Uh, That's a nice question. It took quite a bit of time because first we didn't have this kind of training in the country at the time I was making these decisions. And this is uh, probably around 2011, I want to say, so quite early on uh, during my master's program. And for me at the point, at at that time, the main thing was to just go and find somewhere where it can be done in a structured way. So a lot of places that were offering further training were doing it in sort of spaced or batched programs, if that makes sense. So you'd go out of the country for a couple of months and then come back and then go back again. And that back and forth travel, I didn't have money for that. So I was looking for a place where I can go in and sort of do a clean whatever time and then, uh, you know, come back into the country. But when I was looking at the programs, I then quickly realized that that's not how life was going to work uh, because I wanted to find a place where I had easy access to get back home as well. So I didn't want to be too far. And at the time I was looking at options, uh, South Africa, Australia, Canada, and the UK. And that's how I ended up where I am now. So when you finally settled on the UK, what was that sort of like application process like? Was it very rigorous or was it more straightforward? I want to say rigorous in a way because um, application for fellowships from outside the UK can be quite difficult. You need to almost enter 
get into the system and then learn the system before people can have a bit of faith in, yes, your capacities and we can let you, you know, sort of trust that process. So what ended up happening is I got into a program that allowed me to come and work in the National Health Service. And it is during that time that I got to connect with people who are in fellowship programs. Now, the fellowships in the UK work very different from other countries in that they are part of the normal training program, if that makes sense. So it's not separated from someone who's doing an OBS and gynae training program will at some point towards the, at the end, the last two years, do a subspecialty program. And they've got to apply the local trainees and it's highly competitive, uh, especially for certain fields. So gynae oncology and fertility, highly, highly competitive. So you can imagine having to come, you know, coming from elsewhere and trying to compete with someone who's been in the system for nearly, you know, sort of it takes them about seven to eight years to, to complete their training. So that was the difference. I had to get into the National Health Service and then make an application through, you know, the system where I was. Oh, wow. How long did it take, like, you know, being in the National Health Service first? What was that period of time? Uh, so it took me a year and a half. But during the year and a half, I was working and I was getting paid within the NHS. So that's how long it took. But I have to backtrack a bit and just say that also getting into the NHS is a, an entirely different animal, if you, if you want to call it that, uh, because you've got to prove to the General Medical Council, so the equivalent of um, Kenya's Medical Practitioners and Dentist Council, that you can work as a doctor. So you've got to get that sorted before you even touch any patients in the UK. Wow. I feel like that different animal they all should just gather somewhere because <laughs> so stressful. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, you know, some of these things you discover when you're in it. Yes. For example, you're thinking, oh, I just want to go for a fellowship. And then you realize I've got to, you know, sort of touch patients and, and do that. And they take you back and say, you don't have GMC registration. Okay, so how do I get that? Yes. And you look back and there's sort of steps. And that's why it would probably be very wise for someone who's thinking about it to look in advance i think this these are things that you should be looking at even sometimes from undergraduate if you if you've got that sort of drive and you clear on what you want to do yeah and start looking really early because there's lots of hoops to jump before you get there yeah i think it's really important that you've mentioned it for undergraduate because back in our day which now i realize was a long time ago <laughs> not a lot of people were thinking of being outside the country it was a very small percentage of people who are thinking about flying out, going to yeah. either pursue their subspecialty. What are some of the things, now that you've mentioned undergraduates, what are some of the things they should you know, be looking out for or start seeking out in terms of information that will mm -hmm. help them be better prepared if that's the direction they want to take? I think um, being focused and taking our undergraduate training, not just that you want to be a doctor, because I think in those small things, you come to realize where your passions lie. So, for example, you know, by third year, knowing that, oh, I like the female part of things. And things have evolved as I've grown older, but having clarity even as we are going along. 
So I think sometimes in undergraduate, you're really just living day by day because you're so focused on the now, the present of I need to pass microbiology, I need to pass pathology without connecting how you're going to use it in future. And I know it's a lot to put on people who are young, but if you look at people who've gone really far, they've had that kind of vision. I think, uh, and part of what, what I'm working on at the moment is also our training uh, because if you look at other countries, this is actually something that they start to mentor and they grow from very from a very young age. So these things are actually thought of by the time people are getting out of undergraduate. So it makes it, that's a difference, I think, for us. And hopefully it will be for the guys who are coming behind us. And you've touched on something so key, which is mentorship. And I wanted to ask, um, as you continued having this sort of very developmental molding from third year, then finishing undergrad, you know, then finally getting into a subspecialist training. What role did mentorship play for you? I feel like I should buy all of them things and I just (laughs) don't have the money to do it. Yes, we start with Um, the flowers here. Start with the flowers here. (laughs) Start with the flowers. Um, I, I, I wrote a whole page believe it or not, uh, of acknowledgements for my thesis for master's, because that's how important uh, my mentors have been. And I f- feel lucky that uh, I've, I've rarely ever had to look for a mentor, if that makes sense. I've been lucky in that people have often spotted things that I know, but I haven't spotted them in myself and had the courage to sort of work on. But I've gotten also better at identifying mentors. So for example, my internship consultant, if you look at his track record for how many people who did internship in Machakos have ended up as OBS and Gaini, it's, it's evidence or testimony to the kind of work that he did in that time and continues to do. Uh, his name is Dr. Kapanga. So that was one of the very influential people in my decisions. So you know that you want to do OBS Gaini, but what does that look like? He was very instrumental in guiding us and showing us this is what OBS and Gaini means. My next mentor, who is still continues to be a very big influence in my life, is currently the chair of uh, the Kenya Medical Association. So we work very closely with him. And he was a great mentor in that he let me also fly. Like he gave me wings and then he let me fly, but I could always feel him in the background sort of saying, you've got this. I'm, I'm here. If you need help, if you need anything, I'll back you up. And that's really important, I think, for mentorship to have someone who's not only holding your hand as you walk, but also pushing you a bit from the back and giving you that uh, that support. I then started working at Aga Khan and I had a beautiful mentor there who was convinced, you know, like he was convinced that I'll just be the greatest. So I took that and may I just fly with this greatness. So he's very influential. And I got my first female mentor, which is very strange, that had been mentored by men all through. My first female mentor came when I was doing my master's. I approached her because I loved how she worked. She was just like very much on top of things. She was, she's really, really, really good. And she has held my hand and continues to hold my hand to, to this this. So, you know, I've been lucky in that way. Coming to the UK, I've then also gotten some mentors here who are still guiding my path. Uh, and it's important to have people like that in your life, I think. That is so beautiful. And it's it's so impactful to just hear, like all the way from internship, that you've had all these people who've 
played different roles for you in mentorship, which I think is so key. And I'll put you a little bit on the spot. Are you in a position or have you been mentoring other up-and-coming gynecologists or gynecologists in the making? What do you have to say about that? Yes, so I feel that I've, uh, and I continue to uh, work quite closely with uh, lots of uh, younger OBS and gynecologists. When I finished my MMed, my master's, I went into private practice. And in my private practice, I had to sort of come up with a way to work with someone else, which was very unheard of, literally. OBS and gynecologists are probably the worst at trying to do group practice with because it's so chaotic, you know, it's night and day and weekends, and it makes it very difficult to sort of come up with a schedule, especially if you're in private practice. If you're working in a hospital, it's much easier because there's rota and, and things like that. So when I came up with a structure that looked like it could work, I then needed to leave to, to do the fellowship. And it put my mentor and colleague in a sort of position for, now what are we going to do? And I didn't want that to happen because I felt that uh, we needed the practice to continue and it would offer her also time to do other things by herself, for herself. So in that way, then I brought in two younger OBS and gynees uh, who have now also finished and are doing their own thing. And I'm so happy because they keep sort of growing and I can see them and I feel very happy. But I've also mentored people who are interested in sort of transitioning uh, spaces and careers. I've recently had someone who's actually stopped doing medicine and has gone into a different uh, sort of space. So yeah, I, I do mentor and yes, I'm very open to mentoring. This is exciting. I feel like when people listen to your episode, we're going to get a lot of flooding for, please mentor me, even me, I'm being mentored as we have this conversation. So it's really exciting. So now you've done your application, you've gotten to the UK, you've gotten the GMC. How was transitioning now into the subspecialist training itself? What was that process like for you? So first things is that uh, people commute a lot in the UK. It's ridiculous how much commute happens. Uh, so where I got my training position was about... I want to say maybe half an hour drive. I was not driving. I had no UK license to drive. I had stayed over a year, so I could not use my Kenyan license to drive. And then using the train would take the train on and the bus would take about one and a half hours. So my training started in May, which was all dandy and fine when it is nice and warm. And then in October, I had a bit of a shocker because I'd sort of not processed how cold it was going to be for me to commute. So previously I would walk to work, nine minutes walk. And now the commute was taking nearly an hour and a half in public transport in the cold. So I had to quickly learn, you know, sort of refresh my driving and get a license and get a car so that at least that could save my, my commute. The work hours were quite uh, reasonable. It's an eight to five uh, training program, which is part of the beauty of uh, reproductive endocrinology. There are no night calls. You you do take calls, but it's on phone and you work uh, about one weekend a month. So in that way, that really worked out for me. 
I think I love the fact that it was eight to five. There were no night calls unless now on phone. Because I think for a lot of people in fellowship training, the challenge is now almost sliding back. Some programs sort of slide back almost into residency, which is not ideal. And it's great to hear that they had that structure for eight to five. There are no night calls. You have that one weekend in a month so that it allows you to also just have some work-life balance. And how was the skill acquisition and, you know, just that learning environment, especially having come from a space where you're the consultant in your previous country, and now you're sliding back into a learning and student phase. How was that transition for you and that skills acquisition for you? Uh, So for me, I am a lifelong learner. That's what I call myself. So I don't find problems um, switching brain to student mode. I I really quite enjoy being in school and I like it. Uh, That said, I know that there are people who really struggle, especially coming from consultant level and then almost like going back to, to being a student. For me, it's because it's a new skill. That's how I look at it. I'm learning new things and I'm learning, you know, it's a new experience. I've always been able to flip back the switch and almost go into, I even want to say undergraduate mode. So keeping my brain very open, soaking up, you know, sort of all that. The program is quite rigorous. So you've got a logbook that you've got to fill all sorts of things, like so much, even clacking a patient. Uh, you've got to clerk a patient, take a history, examine, and someone has to sign you off. So things like that, if you're having your consultant head on, can be very tricky. But it's interesting uh, because I learned a few things just even from the driving test exam here. If you think about a driving test that's structured for a 17-year-old, you've got to put your brain in that sort of space. So that's how I went in to the fellowship. This is completely new space for me. I've got to learn even how to clerk a patient And I'm asking questions that are very specific. You know, you're asking questions about sexual health. You've just really got to get into that space. So I didn't didn't find it uh, difficult. That is a special kind of framing because it takes so long even to just get to specialist status. And so I, I get it from the perspective of having to sort of like humble yourself, for lack of a better word, humble yourself and being open to that learning. And it's so great to hear that your perspective, your mind is already shifted, you know, in that learning environment. I wanted to ask, you know, you talked about other people in the UK. These were very competitive fellowship opportunities. All these people have been in this highly competitive state. And then there's a foreigner or an outsider who's coming into the learning space. Did that have an impact at all? Uh, So first, I was lucky because I was removed from the big sort of space where everyone else interacts. The five training positions are across the country. So you don't get to meet them unless you are, you know, sort of going for a conference and uh, things like that. But the people who don't get into the training, you also don't get to meet them because then they are continuing with whatever paths from that hospital. So I literally physically... I'm not in that space. And in my fellowship uh, training, I was, you know, myself and one other guy. So it's not that you're going to be having that much interaction. The program is so busy, you don't get to see the guys who didn't get into the program. 
that's great to hear. Even that structure just being helpful in that way. If you think back to your training, what were, you know, a couple of highs? I think that to be able to learn new things and think in new ways, that's been quite informative. But also looking at uh, how the health system and how things function and appreciate where I had come from. Um, how do I say, I want to quantify that that statement. When a lot of people are uh, at home, you really think big things about uh, outside. They're, they're these big, big thoughts. I didn't have those kind of big thoughts, you know, sort of thinking, oh, the UK is like the best place ever. And, you know, their system is so fantastic. I came with an open mind to sort of see how that works. And I was so pleased to know that I trained so well like our training is superb, basically, just because we don't have a few things it didn't put me at a disadvantage. I was highly skilled in, in the basic sciences. I was really skilled in discussing pregnancy and uh, early pregnancy losses because I've seen those and our training is really good. So the high for me and has remained a high is to have validation of how well our training program is in the country. And it's so great that you've mentioned that because I was telling someone, and I think in a previous episode, I actually said our training is really, really good. And yeah. you only realize it when you go into a different space is when you're like, actually, we may not have had all these gadgets. However, yeah. we're able to, like as a clinician, we're at a very high level. So shout out to the Kenyan medical training system because we are products of it and we are yeah. grateful. And could you think of some laws during the course of your, your training, your subspecialty training? Yeah. So one of the laws, what happened is the center where I was in, maybe about six months in, in that time, the unit I was working in had really low numbers. So I could see that I wasn't getting the numbers that I required to be able to complete my fellowship on time. So I really struggled with that because, uh, you know, if you if you don't have enough cases, then it just means that you're going to stay on longer in your program. And what I did is I had a chat with the medical director for the unit, and they suggested that since you're already halfway, what we can do is try and get you applying to a different unit, which would be happy because you're already sort of doing the things. You're not coming to be trained from scratch. And that unit now happened to be in a different city, in a different town. So smack in the middle of my uh, training, I've got to move across the country and move house. I have to tell you that moving house in the UK, my God, is, is, is a nightmare. Everything is tied to your address. So you've got to change all those things as you're moving. And even just trying to find a place that's affordable. The new town was way more expensive, equivalent of almost paying like London prices. I was paying half the prices in rent and food and things like that outside. But because I moved, then the caseload was much higher. And therefore, I got my training, sort of my sign-offs within three months. So it was advantageous in that way, in that my program that would have taken one year was shortened up to nine months. And then the rest of the time, I was just, you know, sort of building up my sort of caseload and getting confident and things like that. But the actual training in terms of my logbook, I finished ahead of time because I moved to this new unit. 
Oh, and that's so fantastic that, you know, one of your supervisors was like, you know what, shift, you know, as in pivot. Yeah. <laughs> as they say in French, pivot, pivot. 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 Just to shift a little bit, I wanted to ask if there are any projects or any research opportunities that you can talk about that came out of you being in the subspecialist fellowship training that you had in the UK? Okay, so for my specific uh, fellowship, so the UK has got two different uh, things that you can pick from, again, which is really advantageous. Research fellowships, uh, which are purely research, so you don't touch patients, which I wanted to touch patients. So there's the clinical fellowship which works different in that you're touching patients and seeing patients. You can try and do some research, but if you think about how that day is structured, you'd have to do that outside of your own time if you'd like to combine it. So I did a project during my fellowship training. I've not published that yet, but I am also now starting a research fellowship, which is quite different in the way that it's structured because I like both things. So that's the difference with the training uh, for the UK. I think other, other countries will have them combined. Oh, wow. It will be exciting to see what gets published and we'll be looking out for it for sure. And I wanted to just find out, is this the same project that I've been seeing you raising funds for? Like when you climb and you do hikes? Oh, so when I do hikes, that's a different. <laughs> that's a yes. Different Are you able but to talk about that? I do a lot of other things, which is um, I like. Yeah. For fun. So my my big sort of thing is women's health. Right. Even though I've gone to a subspecialist level, and in fact I am about to start a PhD. So that's not going to be further down because the option would be to look, for example, into the ovary or the the microbiome. You know, like really really tiny things. But I've always had an interest in general women's health. And this is the full spectrum from when people start getting periods to when the periods end. So I don't want to lose out on that. And that's part of the things that I do. So when I'm raising uh, money and doing hikes, that's in the bigger scheme of women's health. And that's uh, the last project that I did. I was raising money to fund research for endometriosis. So yeah, those are very, you know, sort of different things. Still a bit of hormones in there, but that's, that's a kind of other work that I do. When I travel to Nairobi, I have uh, women camps that I run and talk to women because I'm big on women's uh, edu- girls and women education. Uh, so sometimes you will see me raising money for those kind of projects. So the last one I did, I had about 500 women from Westlands and we're just having a chat about their bodies and what happens. It's, it's impressive how much no one knows about our bodies, including the men. They get very shocked when we talk about cramps and pain and things like that. So that's where that comes from. I think it's such a learning point, even for me, just to see how much you have immersed yourself. You know, you've just said, my thing is women's health and everything about all your work, all your extracurricular always end up circling back to women's health. And it's so great to see how much you've leaned into this passion and this body of work and you know just to be able to witness that is so amazing so I just let me just give you flowers now because that's that's really really amazing Doki 
And so just to shift a little bit, when we think about mental health, because you've been in subspecialist training for how many years has it been now so far in terms of your subspecialist training? The training was two years. Yeah. I've worked, oh, that's gone quick, three years. And so in that in that time, what are some of the things that you did that helped take care of your mental health? Ooh, lots of things. Ooh, I like that. Um, yes. <laughs> I read a lot and I don't read medical things. I, I mean, I, I do read medical things, but I don't read that much medical things anymore because I realized at some point I was very knowledgeable in the body, but, uh, you know, my expanse of knowledge in other things was lacking. So I challenged myself. So I read a lot and that usually helps me to sort of shift frame, you know, when I'm in the zone, which is medical and I can get out through books. Are there a couple of books that you can think of, a couple of titles that have been impactful for you that you can share? Yes. Oh, gosh. Uh, So many. Um, I'm currently immersed and I say immersed because it's very nice. It's almost a medical book, but it's not about medicine in that way. I'm reading Michael Marmot, The Health Gap, which is very fascinating because it's uh, talking about the link of poverty and health. So that's really juicy at the moment. Uh, I've loved uh, Stanley Tucci. I don't know if you, you you must know him from, um, what movies does he make this guy? He has a bald head. Yes. Oh, I didn't know he's an author. (gasps) You must read his book. Oh my God. Oh, which one? It's called Taste or something like that. Or for the taste or something about the taste. It's so cool. It's about food. Yes. Which I love. I love food. But he talks about his experience. I didn't know he got cancer. And he talks about having chemotherapy and radiotherapy, but being a food lover and how that impacted his life. Oh, my gosh. That sounds so impactful. So nice. But it also has recipes for food inside. It's so cool. Like, it's such a well-written book. Ah, I love it. Yes. Okay. Is it called Taste My Life Through Food? Yes, that one. Okay. And you know what? I know you're an avid reader. Let me allow you maybe two more titles. As in, I just realized (laughs) you read a lot. So telling you two was just very (laughs) limiting. Maybe a couple of more titles that you really, really enjoyed. Adam K, really nice book about obstetrics. I had to share this with my folks because they really were not understanding what my life was about. And, you know, for anyone who doesn't understand what being a doctor, dating a doctor, living with a doctor, all those things, that guy has really summarized our problems in that book. So this guy was an obstetrics trainee in the UK. And he went through the whole program and oh, I don't want to spoil the book, but he he stops being a doctor. Like, oh my God, there's no book that has resonated with me and my folks as much as that book, because they finally started to see what my life is like through that book. It's very difficult to explain to people. I've got to wake up at 3 a.m. and go and deliver a child. Correct. What's the title of the book? Uh, this is Going to Heart. He's written a couple of other books, all quite uh, sort of interesting. His most recent one is called Undoctored, mm-hmm. uh, which I haven't uh, looked. I have it on my shelf, but I haven't started it yet. So 
we'll see we'll see and then paul coelho's uh, alchemist really good people think you should read it once i would suggest reading it every so you know sort of couple of years because you get a different message every time you read it it's a very weird book in that way oh i've never heard anyone talking about the alchemist in that way like i read it years and years ago in my 20s Mm. And I haven't had a chance to read it again. So now I'll be challenged to read The Alchemist again. This would be really cool. Yeah, read it because every time I've read it, it's got a different sort of message in the time of when you're reading it. Oh, wow. This is so rich, Doki. I am so grateful and I'm so glad you're an avid reader. And I'm sure the listeners will be very excited to see the names of these books and when we're doing the description of this episode. I do weightlifting and I swim and I cycle and all these things are very nice for mental health. I like to hike and walk. So yes, it is important to take care of your mental health in whatever way works. Um, Could I ask why weight training? At some point in my fellowship, I was convinced that I was overweight, but that wasn't the problem. I was very unfit and I could not go up and down the stairs without panting and chest pain. So when I went to the gym and asked the man there that I wanted to lose weight, he was very confused because apparently my body is small frame, but I was convinced I was very overweight in my head. I was just like, this is not very good. So he made me do all sorts of exercises and cardio and running and skipping and all sorts of things that I don't like. And then he took me to the weight training area and I loved it, fell in love, and I have continued to lift ever since. That's amazing to hear. And I'm, I'm shocked that you thought you were overweight because I've always known you to have a smaller frame from way, <laughs> way back then. <laughs> but, uh, it was all around my heart. Yes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Just to shift a bit, do you have any regrets from your, you know, your learning experience in subspecialty training so far? I have none. I and, and this extends to other bits of my life. I don't believe we should live in regrets. The time is really short. If you find that you're not happy with what you're doing, you're in a job or a place that you don't like, just leave. Like, don't go through it and then look back and say that was a waste of time. So, no, I have no regrets with my choices so far. Touch wood, I don't have them. That's great to hear. And I love the way you're like, if you're not happy in a space, just shift. And I think, which is different because there is a generation that doesn't believe that. Again, just suffer through it and maybe there'll be a breakthrough. But I love what you said about, you know, we don't have a lot of time. We don't have a lot of time left. Now, looking at people who are thinking about fellowship, someone is thinking about going to the UK, someone is thinking about a fellowship. What would be your nuggets of wisdom to this person? My best motto is the one for Nike, just do it. There is no time like now. You've got to get over all those fears. It's not easy, but it's not impossible. So just do it. I absolutely love that. And what would you say to somebody who is about to graduate? They are just about to sit their exam, about to finish their fellowship. What would be your nuggets of wisdom in terms of transitioning into practice or transitioning into more training what would be the nuggets there i think over time what i've learned is first introspect 
at any point where you're having a big change. So a graduation or you've finished your master's, take a bit of time to just look into yourself. I think sometimes we are quite almost like hamsters on a wheel and just wanting to get things going. I have found a lot of value in taking breaks and this may be whatever time you feel that you need, taking a bit of break to look into yourself and see and touching base with yourself. Am I still on the right path? Is this how I want to go? And then what do I need to get done to get to that point? So looking inwards, you'll find lots of answers in there. And sometimes it just means that you need to change you know, an entire career. And sometimes that is scary for a lot of people, but looking inside yourself, you'll find a lot of those answers. So taking time to sort of introspect, you know, even when you finished a fellowship, take time to just touch base with yourself before you take the next step forward. I absolutely love that. And I'm so grateful for you taking the time to share nuggets at different stages of your training. And it's just been so amazing to be able to reconnect and hear about this amazing journey. So thank you so much, Doki. You're very, very welcome. Yes. And so I can hardly wait to hear how you're going to interact with this episode. We are looking forward to hearing from you. And I want to just ask Doki, if somebody yeah. wants to be able to reach out to you on the socials, is there a handle or is there an email or a way that they can be able to connect with you virtually? I, I do try. I must say this is a lot of effort keeping up with these uh, social things. But I'm on Instagram at DokiDocs. And uh, on Twitter, I'm DW Mushiri. And what I'd normally say is if you send me a message, please introduce yourself. Say how you would like to help me. Don't just say hi. I'm also on LinkedIn. See, I forget all these social things. Yes. Yes. LinkedIn, LinkedIn by my name. Thank you so much. And I think we are going to put this in the description so that if people want to be able to connect with you and like you've said, ask you questions, that they're able to do that directly. Thank you so much, Doki. Thank you very much. All right. Bye. Bye. so glad you stayed tuned. Please get the word out and share it with at least three people. Make this episode like a chain letter. Share it, share it, share it. Come back for the next leg of our safari where we'll be talking about... I have seen international medical graduates not be respected for the knowledge and expertise that they have. A lot of assumptions been made without actually people asking, oh, so what's your background? What have you done in this area? Are there some things I can help you with, right? So that appreciation of all of the challenges international medical graduates are facing and almost like a dismissal that any of those things should actually influence their performance. Listeners are advised to use their own judgment and discretion when applying any information discussed in this and all podcast episodes to their specific situation. Always seek the advice of a qualified professional if you have any concerns or questions regarding a particular subject matter. You can find this and other episodes of this podcast on our website at www.fellowshipsafaris.org. You can also find all our episodes on all podcast platforms.
reach out to us on social media as Fellowship Safaris on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And our Twitter handle is at fellowshipsafar. You could also send us an email on fellowshipsafaris at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and interacting with what you have to say about the Fellowship Safaris podcast. It takes a village to make this podcast. The executive producer and original music is done by Mokavi Maweu. The sound engineer is Tevin Sudi with thanks to AQ Studios. Graphic design was done by Benjamin Mboya. We would like to give a special shout out to Josephine Karianjahe and Melissa Mbogwa of Africa Podfest. All rights reserved by Dr. Jerry Karianjahe and the Fellowship Safaris podcast. <laughs>